This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hello and welcome to another edition of How to Bay Area, the show that tells you how to get stuff done right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Keith Manconi. On this edition, we'll be talking about how to social distance properly. You know, when it comes to sheltering in place, you would think there really wouldn't be that much to it. Stay there. Don't move. But life is, of course, more complicated than that. And so far, it's been pretty clear that different Bay Area residents have decided to interpret these orders in different ways. So what are the safest social distancing practices during this pandemic? For some answers, in just a few seconds, we're going to be hearing from a social epidemiologist about the do's and don'ts of social distancing. Spoiler alert, there are a lot more don'ts than do's here, unfortunately. Just a quick programming note before we get into it, though. What you are about to hear is actually an expanded version of an interview that played in late March on the KCBS in-depth weekly talk show program. Uh, there was so much to say we couldn't fit it all in during the broadcast runtime, so we are making the whole interview available here on the podcast stream as well. And right after this, we are also going to be posting another lengthy interview on how to keep your home clean and virus-free. So, Look for that on the podcast stream as well. All right, with all that in mind, thank you for joining us. Let's get to the program. So, the question of how to socially distance properly. Bringing the answers, we are inviting on to the program now Carolyn Canusio, who is the Director of Research at the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Canusio, thank you for joining us. So glad to be with you. Well, there definitely have been plenty of signs of trouble in our social distancing efforts here in the Bay Area over the last couple of weeks. You can see that in the crowds of people who have flocked to the beaches and the crowds of people who have flocked to the parks, sometimes getting much too close together, all of this prompting stern rebukes from public health officials. So it seems like not everyone is on exactly the same page here about social distancing, even if we have heard the term about a thousand times at this point. Uh, Professor Canusio, if you could help us fix that, let's go back to the basic basics of all of this. What is social distancing and why is this such an important tool in the fight against this disease? Social distancing is actually one of the most powerful public health tools we have. 
to control the spread of this new and deadly virus. What we're trying to do is limit our face-to-face -face contacts and limit our involvement in the public sphere of life so that we can deprive this virus of its next susceptible host. We want to keep that virus from moving from one person to the next. The best way to do that is to stay at home and to stay away from people outside your immediate household. Right. And that's all simple enough. But I feel like what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks is people looking for the loopholes, looking for those gray areas. Because, you know, when public health officials gave us those stay-at-home orders, there was a long list of exceptions. And people are still going out. They're still seeing, you know, what is okay and what's not okay. And I suppose maybe just to bottom line this thing, bottom line is you should be staying away from as many people as you possibly can outside of the folks in your own household. It's absolutely the case that we need to limit our face-to-face -face contacts with other people. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that as people have asked me about social distancing over the last several weeks, everyone is in search of the magic loophole that will allow them to continue to have a relatively normal existence and a social existence. And the truth is that if you're doing social distancing right at this moment, your life should look very, very different than it looks on any normal day. This is not a normal time and we need people to be aggressive and rigorous about their interpretations of social distancing so that we can control the spread. If you look at what happened in China, China really cracked down and kept people in their homes. A major difference I see in Philadelphia, and it sounds like this is happening in the Bay Area too, is that people aren't going to work, but they now are using their time in public in parks and they're congregating and they somehow think that small gatherings in private homes are exempt. The truth is that with each additional social contact we have, we increase the risk that we may infect someone else or that we may be infected. So it's critically, critically important for people to limit their social contacts. Yeah. And to throw in a, a personal example to illustrate some of the things that I'm worried about, I, I live in a house with three other roommates. And uh, about a week ago, one of my roommates went on a bike ride with his sister. And th this got me a little bit worried because I'm somebody who's still going out into public to report occasionally, being as careful as I absolutely can. But still, you know, that puts me at somewhat heightened risk. And I know that my roommate's sister lives with their 70-plus-year-old uh, mother. And so that means that if I get sick, that's a straight line of transmission to this person that is at higher risk. And I don't know, That's I'm not sure that everybody is thinking about this in those terms right now. Absolutely. So this is really key. Every contact within your network should really be a closed loop. You shouldn't open that loop to others. You have to avoid that as much as possible because there's a vulnerability introduced in both directions for your household and for other households. So I have been asked many times about the idea of, for example, two households partnering up and coming up with a pact that just those two households will provide mutual aid and social contact. The difficulty, of course, is that people belong to the 
essential workforce category and have to go out and work. So it's hard to find two households that can really maintain this kind of closed loop system. In addition, I think it's a big trust exercise to enter into that kind of pact with another household. How well do you know that that other household is adhering to the rules that you set? So people have to recognize that we introduce vulnerabilities every time we loosen the constraints. Yeah. And another challenge of all this is that we are dealing with a threat that's totally invisible. So it's really difficult to visualize what it is that we're up against. So if you could address the thought that I imagine a lot of people have that, you know, maybe I am around other people occasionally, but those people are not coughing, they're not sneezing. Therefore, you know, there's really no way that they could be getting the virus on me. Could you address that thought? So over the past few weeks, the scientific evidence has been accruing to suggest that people can spread the virus when they're asymptomatic, when they're showing no symptoms. And that, of course, is a huge public health challenge because we can no longer say, take your temperature. And if you're having a fever, don't come over to the play date or to our little dinner party or cocktail party. Symptoms can't be used as a guide to um, whether or not somebody can transmit the virus. So that's one thing that's challenging. The other thing that's challenging is that we now know that the virus can be detected in the air for at least three hours in an enclosed space. So there's the potential that as we learn more, we're gonna learn that the virus can really be transmitted in an airborne fashion, which would mean that enclosed spaces might be posing a hazard even if there's not another person visible there. So I, I put a little caveat in there with, uh, we don't know for sure. However, both of those evolving ways of thinking have made me in the last two weeks think even more conservatively and cautiously about the ways I want to operate and want other people to operate. We should really be limiting all of our contact with the outside world. And in public, it's really important. I understand the drive to get exercise. I need it every day in order to cope too. But it's so important to find the empty places. Don't go out and have a picnic with friends. Don't get your jogging group to get together and go for a run together. I've seen a lot of that in the parks. And it's demoralizing to me because we've instituted these measures. We've closed schools. We've closed workplaces. There's a heavy toll taken by just those measures. But then if we go and undo it by congregating in our parks, we're taking all the pain of those measures and we're not getting any of the public health benefit or we're not getting the whole public health benefit. So let's make this work. Do it right. Wow. I mean, that's a that's a really sobering thought to think that even after all the work that we've put into this, the, the effort still could be blunted if uh, we don't really do it the right way. So uh, something for everybody to keep in mind out there. Uh, you know, this uh, this brings to mind as well the personal experience that I think a, a lot of uh, broadcast reporters have been having recently. We, we are all outgoing with our microphones at the end of boom mics at this point so that we can hold our interviewees at bay as we're getting their sound bites. And it's it's been really interesting because people will stay at the end of your boom mic through the course of the interview, good social distancing the whole way through. 
And then what happens is as soon as the interview is over, you bring the boom mic up and they just walk straight towards you. Like, Uh, you know, the social distancing only applied during the interview. Right. So, I mean, what that says to me is that this is really hard. This does require a complete change in the way that we think about social interaction and uh, just a lot of vigilance. Absolutely. And a friend said to me yesterday, I want to walk around with a big hula hoop around me that's six feet wide, you know, to keep people away. And I said, oh, maybe we should bring back the hoop skirt, hoop skirts for everyone, you know, keep your distance, people. It is interesting to note that in some public places and in stores and in our neighborhood farmer's market the other day, for example, you see chalk markings or tape markings to keep people six feet apart in line. I think these kinds of environmental cues are very important when we're asking people to change behavior. And I think they're important as reminders just so that we can keep ourselves in check, but they're also important so that individual people don't have to negotiate every social interaction actively. I know that yesterday I went for a walk and I was aiming for a normally underpopulated park, but to get there, I have to go over a bridge. And I saw people who were familiar to me. The sidewalk was a little crowded. I stayed behind a post and waited and a gentleman made fun of me. He said, don't worry, I don't have the virus. And I said, actually, I'm trying to respect everyone's space so that I don't crowd them. And what if I have the virus? I don't want to give it to anyone else either. So I think it's easy for people to take offense and these environmental controls help reestablish a new or help establish a new social norm that says, here's the expectation for all of us. The expectation for all of us is we should stay far apart. And you don't even have to think about it. You just have to step on this blue tape and don't move. All right. So uh, some really good insights already there. And uh, hopefully folks at home are taking this all to heart. Switching gears just a little bit. Um, for the rest of the program, I I know that we said that we are not supposed to be looking for the social distancing loopholes here, but... I am also aware of the fact and cognizant of the fact that people probably do have a lot of very particular scenarios that they have in their minds where they're trying to think through, does that really count? How strict should I be in that sort of situation? So I think for the rest of the program, what would probably be most helpful is if we could talk through as many scenarios as we can get to and help our listeners think through what are the best ways to approach them. And and, and let's start with the question of, meeting in public and how how loose people should approach that situation. You know, I, I had the example a few moments ago of my friends that wanted to go out on a bike ride together. I'm sure that their thinking was, you know, we're staying six feet apart from one another at all times. We're on bikes. We're never really going to bunch up too much. What, what's your take on how safe something like that is? So, so long as folks make that agreement, we're not coming closer than six feet together. So in concept, it sounds fine. And then in practice, I see people breaking all the rules. So that's why the loopholes are so dangerous because people want permission from an expert who says, it's cool, go on a bike ride or go on a run together and just stay six feet apart. But as a person who studies human behavior, I know that human beings are so fallible and we drop into our old patterns easily. Someone drops their water bottle, we bend down to pick it up for them. You know, somebody, a child falls off their bike. We go to pick them up, obviously. 
So every interaction that we engage in that loosens these rules presents new opportunities to fail and to increase our exposures. So that's why one of the things I've said is if you want to have a buddy you walk with, maybe try to do it with one person, not a group, and try to do it with that same person again and again. And if you're a person who can limit your public face-to-face -face interactions outside the home, try to pick a buddy who's also in that same situation. You know, for example, my emergency department uh, physician friends uh, live in the neighborhood. They're some of my closest friends, but we're not getting together and socializing. Uh, one did come this morning and texted me and said, I'm going to stand in the park behind your house. Can you come out to your deck and talk to me? So that was a structural barrier that kept us from getting close together. Um, and I felt comfortable that we were both being safe. But just know that the more you try to push and bend the rules, the more opportunities there will be for somebody to get sick. And on a, on a somewhat related matter, we did also have a local official make an appeal to Bay Area residents not to leave their own neighborhood when they're exercising. Basically, stay in your own neighborhood as much as possible. If you're going to run, find the trail close to home. I didn't see any deep elaboration as to why that would be. I'm curious for your thoughts on why that might be an important directive for residents. That's an interesting point. I don't know specifically what was behind that uh, recommendation, but one thing we want to do is prevent the mixing of groups, the mixing of populations. Maybe they know of localized outbreaks in particular parts of the Bay Area, for example, and they don't want people from those localized hot zones to come into contact with people from other neighborhoods. But there may be other reasons they were recommending that too. Perhaps they don't want people to be on the roads driving to other neighborhoods to find parks or places to exercise. They want to keep roads open for emergency vehicles. And maybe they're just trying to keep people from gathering at some of the more popular parks and they're trying to thin the crowds. I think we're going to need those kinds of controls. In China, one of the things that happened was that people were given a day of the week when one member of the household was allowed to go out and do grocery shopping, for example. I think we need to do something like that here to keep the crowds in grocery stores down. That was done during the gas crisis by people's um, license plate tag numbers. Um, you know, one day odd numbered plates could get gas, one day even. I think we need things like that in parks too, because when I go out for a walk or run, I see that some of the trails are just so crowded that it's impossible for people to maintain adequate social distance. So I think we need these other measures to keep the volume down in some of our recreational spaces. All right. So that does a good job of covering parks and recreation generally. Let's move on to another thing that is forcing a lot of people out of their homes, out of self-quarantine right now, and that would be going to get groceries. What is your advice for people that, you know, they have to go out for groceries at some point? How can they do that safely? First, plan ahead and don't wait until your refrigerator or your pantry is bare. That way, if you get to the store and it's crowded, you can turn around and go home, knowing that you can come back another time when hopefully it will be less crowded. Another thing that's important is to very much plan ahead 
for your list, everything you need, and alternatives to your usual brands in case things are sold out. This isn't a time to go into the grocery store and meander aimlessly. You need to go in with a plan and be efficient. You can bring wipes of your own, disinfectant wipes, and wipe down the cart. I think that's important in case the store has run out of wipes. But even better, I think, are contactless modes of shopping. So, for example, our local farmer's market now allows people to order ahead, pay ahead of time, and then collect their boxes of food at preordained times by your uh it's alphabetically organized. So I think other grocery stores are starting curbside pickup. All these kinds of contactless shopping are better, quite frankly, for the grocery store employees and for the shoppers. I'm worried about grocery store employees as service professionals who have to have a lot of face-to-face -face contact. So I, I'm seeing more and more local shops adopt these contactless shopping approaches. And I'm hoping that large grocery chains will take the lead and make sure that that's the mode of shopping now. The other thing you can do is shop local and call ahead to small local stores and see if they would put together a bag of groceries for you that you could pick up on the curbside. Well, and then another way that folks are getting a lot of their food right now is at-home delivery from restaurants uh, using DoorDash or some other kind of delivery service. And you know, it occurs to me that that is only as safe as your delivery person and your uh, the people working in that restaurant are healthy. So what are your thoughts on how safe those at-home deliveries are at this point? I will say that I don't know the exact quantifiable risk associated with getting food delivered from a restaurant. I The packaging would mostly be the concern, so you could wipe down the packaging with disinfectant wipes and then heat the food and the virus should be degraded. I haven't read about food itself being a source of transmission. I would say the packaging is probably more of the concern, but in my mental model of how to prevent transmission, my main driving guideline is to avoid face-to-face -face contact with other people and to avoid going into public places. I think that's probably driving much of the transmission. And then there's probably some marginal transmission from things like food deliveries, but I haven't seen data to help quantify exactly what that risk is. Mm. Let's talk about now the situation that many homeless residents find themselves in. Uh, obviously, it's been pointed out a number of times that homeless people are not as able to socially distance as others. Uh, although I will note that uh, visited a homeless camp uh, a week or so ago, and I was told by some of the residents there that they are taking steps themselves to uh, kind of spread their tents apart a little bit and tend to those who are not uh, feeling terribly well. Although, you know, they said it, at, at this point, they did not know anybody at the camp who was having COVID-like symptoms. But, you know, obviously there are some real challenges there. Big public health response coming as well. But, you know, this, this is going to be perhaps a, a very vulnerable population at a time of uh, in, intense demands on our resources. So what is your advice to homeless residents or others who are hoping to see that problem taken care of? This is a tough challenge, but your introduction and your question remind me of how resourceful and resilient 
people are who have lived at the margins and in very vulnerable circumstances. I would say that for people who have resources right now, and I know there's a concentration of people who do have resources in the Bay Area, now is really the time to give to homeless outreach organizations, even things like uh, getting donations for hand sanitizer so that people can practice good hygiene while in those camps. That is a, a very important thing. But in addition, here in Philadelphia, the city has been acquiring hotel rooms so that when people are sick, they can have a safe place to stay in isolation but while also being cared for with meals, et cetera. And I would hope that the Bay Area is also taking those steps because the importance of central isolation to controlling spread was definitely shown in China. That's a, a critically important step to get down rates of transmission and, and slow the epidemic. So I would say we can't leave people who are experiencing homelessness to their own devices. We need policy solutions that offer safe places to stay that help people who are sick to get tested and to get housed in an a central isolation facility, even if they don't require acute hospital care to get out of the crowded camps in order to slow transmission. So I would love to say that there is advice that we can give to people living on the streets, but I think the advice should really be to policymakers that what happens to people experiencing homelessness affects everyone in the Bay Area and we need to care and we need to provide adequate resources in order to house people in central locations um, and stop the spread. Yeah. And uh, your answer there kind of raises for me another question that I wanted to put to you, that being, well, you know, if you go on Nextdoor right now, you will see so many people stepping up, offering their services to help fellow neighbors. Uh, the most common example is probably people offering to help buy groceries for their elderly neighbors that would be more at risk if they went out in public themselves. And that is all very heartwarming and really, I think, speaks to the, the warm character of Bay Area residents and many more residents uh, throughout the country. But at the same time, you know, we, we are, no matter how much you want to help, going out in public does introduce some level of risk. And I'm curious for your thoughts on what should those volunteers be keeping in mind as they go about that volunteer effort. Is, is this a safe thing to be going out and doing, and how can it be made safer? It's a great question. And we have a history in the United States of volunteerism during epidemics to get the country through. So as far back as yellow fever in 1793, it was a citizens committee in Philadelphia that took over control of the city and figured out how to run the hospitals, how to do the banking, how to take care of orphans, how to deal with burials. It was volunteers who organized all of that when the government leaders fled the city. And more recently, during polio epidemics, people organized and donated their dimes. That became the March of Dimes, and that turned into a massive nationwide effort to support the development of polio vaccines. So there is this great history of people coming together, and I don't want to downplay the importance of volunteerism in getting our nation through. That said, 
I would highly suggest that people work through established organizations in their communities. So we have local food banks, you do too, homeless outreach organizations. We can work through those organizations which are establishing policies to keep people as safe and socially distanced as, distanced as possible while aiding in the epidemic response efforts. I would say that also there are safe ways for people to help elders on their block, for example. An elder may not know how to organize uh, contactless grocery pickup and may not be able to do that, but you could call the elder and talk through what their grocery needs are and make the order for them and do the contactless pickup for them. So I think that there are ways to minimize risk. The guiding principle is to stay out of crowded places and to stay out of public as much as possible. So some of our volunteerism should be virtual. We should be figuring out who we can regularly check in on by phone or by FaceTime, for example, and keep people company by checking in in those ways. All right. Well, I think that we probably only have time for maybe one or two more questions before we have to sign off here. Uh, but I do want to revisit a point that you raised earlier in the conversation, that being the very different ways that you can see in terms of how the U.S. has dealt with its outbreak and how China has dealt with its own so far. Uh, you know, those differences coming in the form of China taking fairly strict measures to keep people indoors. Uh, we're hearing about fairly strict punishments. We're hearing about uh, surveillance measures as well. All things that I think most Americans would not be very comfortable with. At the same time, we are also hearing about, uh, apparently, uh, some success in China in terms of bending the curve and bringing this all under control. So uh, I'm curious on your thoughts of where you come down in terms of where the U.S. should be on that spectrum uh, between, you know, laissez-faire, do nothing, and where China is at, which I think again, probably most people would not be very comfortable with. It's a very difficult trade-off. This is not a simple question, and it's one that keeps me up at night, to be honest. I worry that we saw the epidemic control we saw in China specifically because they were able to implement such liberty-constraining measures that would not be palatable at all and could be dangerous in different ways here in the U.S., so we are essentially doing a real-time experiment here to see if we can maintain some of our liberty to move and operate at our own discretion while controlling the epidemic. And my projection would be that we're going to need to have more severe control measures put in place if we're going to get this really, the trans rates of transmission to go down. And maybe there are intermediate steps we can take, like the ones I discussed about limiting the days that people can go out of the house to go grocery shopping or limiting the days that people can go out to exercise in a park. Because right now it looks like a free-for-all here and we are prizing our liberty. And I think we may be doing that at the expense of our health. And I quite frankly worry about that in part because of the lethality of this virus, and in part because many of my loved ones are the people who are staffing the hospitals where people will seek care. And we know from Italy that it's been a crushing blow to the healthcare system to see the influx of patients they've seen. 
And they are a culture that in many ways mirrors ours in terms of the uh, liberties that people enjoy. And the virus has thrived in that environment, unfortunately, and people are dying in huge numbers. So we may have to be prepared to make additional sacrifices to get this under control. Mm. All right. Well, uh, closing out the conversation, it's pretty clear at this point that regardless of whatever social distancing measures we put in place, the next few weeks are going to be very challenging for many regions throughout the country. We are going to see those case numbers climb. We are going to see the deaths tragically climb as well. What would you say to those folks that are seeing those climbing numbers and despairing in some way, uh, thinking that, you know, after all this, perhaps social distancing really isn't working? What would you say to those folks? Thank you for asking this question, because it's one that bears repeating again and again. We have to understand that the people who are getting sick now were exposed two or more weeks ago because it takes a while for the virus to incubate and for symptoms to appear. And then it's not on day one of symptoms that people tend to present in the emergency room. So it's this protracted process of exposure and then development of the disease and then worsening of the disease to the point that people need medical care. So we have to recognize that there is going to be a delay. We will not see the impact of our social distancing measures until several weeks from now. So we have to keep at it, knowing that if it is done properly, it will drive down the rates of transmission. It is so important for us to keep at it. Don't lose faith, don't lose heart, even though you will see a surge in cases in many parts of the country over the coming weeks. All right, well, there you have it. A a very helpful perspective as we continue into this unprecedented time that we're living through. We have been speaking there to Carolyn Canusio. She, once again, is the Director of Research at the Center for Public Health Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Canusio, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me and be well. Yeah, you too. Thanks. This has been How To Bay Area. Thanks for listening. Again, we are also going to be posting another interview right alongside this one in the podcast stream. That one, explaining how to keep your home safe from coronavirus. Hopefully, both of these interviews together give some useful advice as we all try to navigate these unprecedented challenges together. So check that out in the podcast stream, as we said. Uh, Or for that matter, while you're indoors, consider dipping into some of the older How To Bay Area offerings as well. They will be relevant to Bay Area life again soon enough. With that, signing off from the home studio, which is literally my coat closet. Not a joke. Thanks for listening. For KCBS, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe and be well. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.